Remain standing as you take your Bibles or you listen very intently in the honor of God as He speaks to us through His Word. What a great privilege it is that we have the Word of God, that He has given us multiple copies and His Word is very near to us, yea, it is even in our heart. Matthew chapter 17 is the text I'll be preaching from this morning, picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, as now Christ comes down from this uh, mysterious mount of transfiguration and has shown His disciples His glory, making an imprint upon their minds and hearts of that glory. And now He comes back down the mountain to this particular situation. Beginning at verse 10, now hear the Word of God. And His disciples ask Him, saying, Why Then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And when they had come down to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word which is living, sharper than any two-edged sword to cut asunder between soul and spirit and to discern the thoughts of our heart. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and this means of preaching that you have appointed to bring us faith. Granted, O Lord, in this very hour, that as the word is preached, it would not return unto you void. But in this very hour, may you give faith. May you give faith. In the ability of the Son of God, in the willingness of the Son of God, and in the love of Christ for us, we pray for the sake of His name and the exaltation of His glory that you would work in the preaching now of the Word and of this text and send your Spirit out in fullness to empower this text to our own 
souls, into our hearts, into the very heart of hearts, that from it would spring life, and life abundantly with joy. And so we ask that you would be specific to each person here this day to speak to them that which the preacher does not know and only you can fix. And we pray that you would be glorified in it all. For thine is the kingdom and the power and all of the glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As we consider this event that happened immediately following Jesus' coming down from this Mount of Transfiguration, I think it's important for us to grasp the primary message that the Holy Spirit intends for us here in Matthew's Gospel. We have a man who has a son who is possessed by a demon. And the disciples tried to cast it out and were unsuccessful. Now this very particular event is in three of the four Gospels. But the key to this passage is to understand the primary reason why the Spirit, what the Spirit wants us to hear from Matthew's Gospel here. Now the message that the Spirit wants us to hear in Matthew's Gospel of exactly the same events that Mark and Luke gave us an account for, but the message there is different. The account is the same, the message is different. I hope you understand what I mean by that. For instance, it is not the purpose of the Holy Spirit to give us four redundant accounts in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just from different human perspectives, so that if we didn't get it in one, we get it in the other. Rather, it is the purpose of each of these Gospels, from their different perspectives, to give us different messages, even of those same events. Matthew's message to us from this event will be different than Mark's message to us from this event. In Mark's account of this event, he focuses on many of the the anguishing details that surround the situation with this boy. Now, I'm going to read a portion from from Mark's gospel, which is generally more in brief, but from the ninth chapter of, of Mark, let me read a portion of the same account. And you'll see there's a different focus. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Then they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at his mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief. Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. 
And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. That's Mark's account of the same event. Mark adds details to this narrative to focus our attention on something different than what Matthew desires for us to learn from the same event. Matthew does not give us the extremity of the difficulty, nor of the Father's difficulty in believing. Mark focuses more on the Father's faith and the extremity of the Son's condition. But when the disciples came and asked Jesus why they could not cast out the demon, then Matthew gives the fullest answer of all of the Gospels, and that is where he is drawing our focus. Matthew has eliminated anything that may distract us from the bottom line, which in his gospel is the disciples' failure and how the Lord explained it. So This morning I want us to consider this event in the light of the disciples' failure to minister successfully to this desperate father and his son and also to Jesus' answer for it all. I've entitled the message, Faithless, Impotent Ministry. First of all, as we consider this desperate need of the father, Mark has given us much more of those anguishing details, and this is a father who has a son, and he's very desperate. It says, Lord, have mercy on me, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers severely, verse 15. The father has a son who is severely physically hindered, has physical problems due to a demon possession. He had a condition which Matthew likens to epilepsy. Now there are other Greek words for the term epilepsy, and this one here is not that term. The conditions were similar, and so why Matthew would have used a term similar, but not that of what we know. There were seizure episodes in this boy where he was not in control of his own body. And Mark explains some of the the details and how severe those seizures would become and how severe the boy's physical condition was. When it flared up, or when the demon decides to be active in this way. But the root issue to the physical problems was something spiritual, and in this case, demonic. The root issue of his physical problems was spiritual, and in this case, demonic. We need to pause here for just a moment to consider the reality of evil, demonic spirits. Let me just ask you for a moment, do you believe in evil, demonic spirits? Do you believe that they're alive today? Do you believe that they are wreaking havoc today in people's lives? Do you believe that they can oppress people, influence them? The Bible does inform us that these invisible creatures do exist, And they can exert influence on human beings. 
And such beings can have such an influence over human beings that they can affect human beings even with physical problems, some of which are quite severe. We remember in Job, what happened early on in his life that Job, or Satan struck Job with many boils so that he just scraped his boils and he was suffering immensely with these physical problems, but behind it was Satan. Throughout the gospel accounts, we've seen humans in bondage to spiritual beings. We see some that were mute like this boy, and the cause of it was demonic, or deaf, and the cause of it was demonic. Or in the case of one case, we read of a woman who was bent over for years, and she could not straighten herself up, and the Bible says it was a spirit of infirmity, and Jesus contributes it to the binding of Satan over this woman's body, and he heals her. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that every physical problem that we have is attributed to demonic influence, but I am saying that the Bible informs us that some of them are, and that we should not discount those possibilities. love for us just to camp out on here for a little bit and just convince you of that fact. Do you believe that? The last petition of the Lord's Prayer, I think, is the one that is least prayed. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But do we really embrace that and understand it and pray it? And here is the case where the boy's symptoms were physical, but the root of the problem was an evil spirit. Well, secondly, let us consider the impotence of the disciples, the lack of power in being able to cast this out. Verse 16, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. When we see the impotence of the disciples, we see two strands of the narrative here. First of all, we see a father with a desperate situation of his son, and he comes to his disciples with the expectation that they could remedy the problem, and he was disappointed that they could not. But secondly, we see that the disciples themselves were baffled as why they were unsuccessful, and it was quite distressing to them that they could not. Let me ask you this morning. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has come to you in distress, and no matter what you said or did, it did not relieve their distress. Perhaps it's a child who's struggling spiritually, or maybe a spouse who's struggling over something and you try to minister to the spouse, and nothing that you are saying or doing is seeming to relieve any of that distress. Maybe a friend comes for counseling who's oppressed by something evil, or maybe some sin that is besetting them that they can't seem to get victory over. And it seems like whatever you say or whatever you do, it just will not turn the corner for them. 
And where you pray for delivery, nothing apparently seems to happen. Have you ever been there? You ever been there? No? Some of you, but not, not all of you. It's a discouraging thing. It was discouraging to the Father, and it was discouraging to the disciples. Why? Why could your disciples not cast him out? Why could we not cast him out, Lord? This kind of thing can be distressing for both parties. And it was in the narrative of these events where the focus of the message is to us today. Now let's listen third of the Lord's response to the claims of failure in verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, now I want you to hear this. Do not skip over this lightly. O faithless and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Who was he talking to? Who? Disciples? Who else? Probably over in Mark's gospel, the very same phrase was used in Mark's gospel. Probably the man as well. The two that were mostly baffled and discouraged about the situation. Now let's just stop there for just a moment and and ask ourselves, if Jesus were here today and he looks out upon heritage, can he, would he say, oh, faithless and perverse generation, heritage, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? You're faithless and perverse. I must say that if that were true, it would be a pretty stinging indictment to me, the pastor of this work, and I would probably just shrink down in my chair. And quite honestly, that's what I have done in the preparing of this message. I've just kind of shrunk down in my chair. See, he wasn't speaking to the masses out there. Remember, this was a time when Jesus had turned his ministry to focus more on his disciples, and the disciples, or what he's going to begin to explain to in just a moment... He's speaking to his disciples. And I think the man is included in this as well. It's a rebuke. It's a strong rebuke. In those very questions that the Lord asks, we see what he expects of us. Jesus assumes that the evidence of him has been so great that the people are really without excuse for not putting their confidence in him. I told Keith as we were walking out, I said, a new buzzword, no excuses for unbelief. You unbelieving and perverse generation. And I do believe that Jesus is directing that rebuke toward his disciples and the father of this boy. Now, let me explain something about perverse for just a moment. Use that word very narrowly today. And certainly it has application there. But perverse is a word that means a distortion of a matter. It's a twisting of reality. 
But perverse here in which Jesus is using this is a willful thing. It's not due to unbelief or ignorance. Or it's not because one can't quite grasp the facts when they're given to him. There's a perversion in this. It's a matter of their will that has twisted reality. If you have been informed again and again and again, and perhaps even read the Scriptures yourselves, and people have pled with you, and you are still unbelieving and willful, there's a perverseness to this. A twisting of reality. A skewing of that which is real. They're not hearing things in the way that is. Should be the way they hear it. The Bible does not excuse this willful distortion. God doesn't come to you and say, I really feel for you about this, that as of yet, the evidence has not yet been great enough to convince you. See, we are a people who live in a generation that are very soft and get very angry with strong rebukes like this and correction. I know that many people right there would fault Jesus for not being soft and tender and compassionate and, and gracious and merciful. This is God. And the rebuke sometimes is what is needed to get our attention to say, all of the evidence has been given. And you have no excuses in not believing this, my son. No excuses in believing that I have the power and can do this. No excuses in unbelief. God condemns unbelief. And the root of the unbelief is a twistedness down into the heart. A perversion not to believe when you have been confronted with all of the evidence of Jesus Christ. He expects belief. And he assumes that the evidence is sufficient in the Bible of Jesus. And for you to believe Him and His power. He gives His word. Do you believe it? We're so used to taking His Word and justifying disbelief and justifying disobedience and twisting it and perverting it and we continue to give, frame it and couch it in certain language and yet we have no excuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, His power, His willingness, His desire, and His love. Now, this, the fourth thing I'd like to bring out is in verse 17 through 18, and that is the Lord's power to save. Bring him to me, he says. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. The Lord demonstrates his power to save here, even in the face of doubts and unbelief. You remember the father that came to Jesus, he was filled with doubts. Let me let me, let me reiterate the phrase exactly the way it 
says again. Father comes to Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, help us, Lord. Lord, if you can, help us. You know what Jesus' answer was to that? If you can believe, all things are possible. He comes questioning the ability of the Son of God, the God Himself who framed all of the worlds and the heavens and the earth, and He spoke into existence all that is by the power of His Word. And He comes and He says, if you can. I believe. Help mine unbelief, He says. Jesus cured that boy from that very hour and He cured him completely. And that is God's plan and how to address all of our terrible problems. He deals with us through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust yourself to that? Will you give yourself to that? When you're at the end of your rope and all of the distresses of life come upon you, do you give yourself alone to Jesus Christ, believing that He can and He will? Some of our difficulty and distressing bondage is due to ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can know our own heart? We are our own worst enemy. But the Scripture also testifies that some of the problems and distresses are due to fallen wicked spirits. Both of these, our own lying hearts, with spiritual rootedness and perverted thinking, and twisted reality, and fallen spirits who would seek to do us harm can be the cause of physical problems and mental problems and emotional problems. And sometimes we really can't distinguish what the root source of it is. And it's really not important that we do. doesn't matter. doesn't matter if the problem is coming from within here or if it's coming from evil spirits. It does not matter what the root source of the problem is because the answer is the same. And it is to realize that there is no human solution. No human solution. The remedy is true for the believer as well as those who still need Jesus, only divine power can deliver us. Only divine power can overthrow the kingdom of darkness. The power of divine power is concentrated in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why the apostle would say in Colossians, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
That's why he says in 1 Corinthians that, and God both raised up the Lord who will also raise us up in his power. All of this divine power to deliver us is concentrated in Jesus Christ. It is he, not ourselves, that will deliver. Jesus is where the power of the Godhead is so concentrated, and he does have the power to save. Don't come to Jesus and ask him, Lord, can you? He has the power to save you from all of your distresses. Do you believe that? No excuses. But Matthew's main focus now comes into sharper, sharper clarity as he comes to what now next happens. And the fifth point here is that the Lord's explanation to his disciples why they were unsuccessful. Here's his explanation. He spends more time on this than the other Gospels. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind goes out, not out, except by prayer and fasting. Now, we have to think about this in the context for a moment. Recall back to Matthew chapter 10, which we've already been through. Verse 1 says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. Casting out demons is something they've done before. This was not new or novel to them. They've had the, the, the power to do this in the past. They have ministered this way in previous days. So they were confused why they could not do it this time. And the Lord's response in verse 20 was because of your unbelief. That's why you failed. Now that's kind of surprising in some ways because it would appear that in some ways they had a little faith. I mean, just the fact that they would even attempt this, would it not demonstrate to some degree that they had a measure of faith believing that they could? The question kind of assumes itself of some expected success, or they would not have even endeavored to try. But they failed, and they were baffled. And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. And he goes on to tell them that the reason of their failure was their lack of faith, and he does it in these terms. For I say to you, if you have faith, as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move for you. Now, I need to at least explain this for a moment, because some people have taken that quite literally. They go out and they're disappointed when they can't move mountains, and then they conclude they have no faith. I see people smiling at me. You've done this, you've tried this before, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> or you thought about this. This is not literal. 
This is metaphorical. We speak this way. You've made a, a, a mountain out of a molehill. And what he's talking about is something great and insurmountable. He's not talking literally about going out and testing your faith to see if you can move the earth around. But the point is simply this. Even the smallest degree of faith, in the face of the smallest degree of faith, the greatest of things give way. And he uses it in the illustration of a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is a very small seed indeed. I don't have a mustard seed with me, but I do have something that's about the same as, a, as mustard seed. And there's salt. I'm trying to get down to a few. Mustard seed faith. You see that right there? It's all you need, dude. Right there. Take that home with you. Mustard seed faith. Yeah. Right there, Thomas. Can you, can you see that? I got a lot of them there. That's how he explains this thing. If you just had faith that small, in fact, I can't even hardly get one. The point is that the smallest degree of faith overcomes the largest and impossible obstacles. And to the disciples, he's telling them the problem is they didn't have that. He's not saying to us that if you have a little bit of faith and you just need a little bit more, that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you need more faith as though you had a little to begin with. He's saying that you didn't have any faith that you could do this. If you even had a little tiny bit of faith, you would have been successful. As I've said before, it is not the quality of the faith that gives it its virtue, but its object. And in the disciples' ministry in their lives that was going on around the severity of this situation, they did not even have faith that they could accomplish it. It wasn't that they had a little and they needed a little bit more. No, Jesus, if you had even just a small grain, it would have been possible. This is why you failed, disciples. Because if you had any degree of faith, you would have been able to deal with this thing. One of the commentators said, disciples failed to bring any faith at all to bear on this situation, not even that of the size of a grain of mustard seed. I think sometimes we think that in situations that seem overwhelming to us, that we've got a little bit of faith, and we just need a little bit more faith. And I think what Jesus might be Telling us today is, no, you don't have any faith on this matter in me. 
You're looking at the winds and the waves of the world and all of the, the you read the articles and you see the news and all the wind and, the, and you begin sinking because your eyes are not on Jesus. As soon as Peter turned around and looked back, he says, Lord, save me. He just took him. See, Peter was doing the impossible when he was walking on that water. This testifies that I can do something. I can do something. You can do something. That I've been called to do, that you've been called to do. You and I have a supernatural giftedness from the Holy Spirit to do what He has called us to do. And something perhaps that I've done in the past or you've done in the past that's been useful before, but now maybe we fail in. And when I fail this go-round, the reason is faithlessness. And this happens to us all. I can be preaching or teaching. You can be witnessing. You can be ministering with music. And down inside, down deep inside, you can be faithless. And I think we've all been there before. Jesus answers in this next verse, verse 21, however, this kind goes not out except by prayer and fasting. Mark also has this exact phrase as well. I don't have time to comment on the spe specifically on this particular verse. If there's any doubt, certainly go to Mark. But what is, what is failure to pray? It's lack of faith. I want you to see that. I want you to see your lack to pray is connected to your faith. Faith and prayer are inseparable. When we fail to talk to God and pray and ask Him to assert His power through us, it's because sometimes of an assumption I can do this. I don't need that. Things are good to go. I'm okay. And so we don't call upon Him. We presume upon His grace. Or, many times people fail to pray because they doubt it will do any good. You ever been there? I'm telling you, your faith and your prayer life go hand in hand. Part of the answer for us, if we find ourselves up against evil, and that may be even your case this morning, shackled, in bondage of some way, no victory. You know all the right answers and people have counseled you. But the answer is to pray in faith, believing Jesus will grant you the grace for your distress. Pray in faith, believing that Jesus will answer you in your distress. Remember when Jesus said to His disciples, 
The three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him, he takes them a little further in the garden and he says, watch and pray with me that you enter not into temptation. He comes back, has to shake them up. They're sleeping. And you not watch with me one hour? Why did he tell them to watch? The watch is the word for a prayerful vigilance. You're going to need this. Pray that you enter not into temptation. Presumptuously, they fell asleep, not understanding. They had a bit of a perversion and a twist of reality. They weren't clearly seeing what was coming out, about to happen, of which Jesus was not slack in telling them over and over this was about to happen. But they didn't believe Him. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't put it all together. And in their faithlessness, they did not believe His Word to them in that hour. We see them next faltering and falling and failing. Matthew ends this passage with one more indicator of his disciples where they were spiritually at this point. Verse 22, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day they will, he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus had just said this not many days before. That's when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was standing in the way and he was not thinking the way God thinks about this matter, but the way man thinks about this matter. And here it's demonstrating once again. They're not hearing this. They're not comprehending it. They're not discerning this thing faithfully. Now this conclusion to the narrative shows a great exceeding sorrow as disciples because of their lack of faith at this time. Folks, sometimes what we need is not just a little more faith. But what we need is faith itself when none is at hand. The disciples lacked faith. That's why they failed. That's why they were impotent. And that was Jesus' explanation. It wasn't that they didn't have strong enough faith. They simply did not have faith for this situation. And they were rebuked. And Jesus says, how long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? You have no excuse. And that's why... They were impotent to deliver this boy and his father from their distresses. The message is different over in Mark. We would be focusing in on the father's faith at that point, but here the message is to the disciples, to you and me. Prayer was the key to their faith, which in turn was the key to the success of the entire event. You must go to Jesus believing that He 
can relieve you of your distresses and that he will deliver you from your distresses. He not only can, but he will, and he desires to do that because that is the reason he came. We have no excuses in not believing him, his purposes, his power, his will, his desires, and his great love for you. And even in the face of faith that is as little as a tiny mustard seed, the greatest of obstacles can be overcome. Children, you have pastor's permission today at lunchtime. Take the salt shaker and see how small a grain of salt is. Parents, even if I have to come clean up the mess, but before I do, I want you to look at it too. Even the smallest faith can begin to see reality apart from the distortion and the perversion and believe what Jesus desires to do in moving the biggest of obstacles that brings distress to your soul. Folks, what we need is faith in Jesus without doubting His love, His care, His ability, or His desire to give you grace to relieve you from your distresses. And this is exactly why He came. May God give us the faith in every situation to call upon His name and to believe that Jesus saves. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in whom is the power to raise us up, who is loving to us, desiring to relieve us from those things that distress us, to quieten down our frustrations, to give peace where there is chaos in our soul, to replace hatred with love, and to replace disturbance with joy, chaos with peace, and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in our life to the glory of God, showing that you are doing something that man cannot do himself. So we call upon Jesus to save us, to deliver us from our distresses, to save us from our sins and the consequences of those sins. And we ask that you would save us to the uttermost as we draw near unto you in faith, believing that you can and that you will and that you desire to do so because this is why you came. We thank you for the word of God this day. And may we who have no excuse trust in your word, believe your word, take it into our heart, and may that demonstrate itself with a fervent prayer because we know that the fervency of the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We do not have because we do not ask. And Lord, we pray that we would be more faithful in our praying. Thank you for the word this day. We know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So bring forth a harvest of fruit, glorifying to your Son. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.